Welcome to Net Takeaways with Feller and Harf. Isaiah, you have the groovy dance going. Ah, that music makes me feel like we're going to be entering into a rager today. But who knows? <laughs> but alas, it's only Thursday at 9.30 a.m., so it's probably no ragers. But it is the pumpkin spice latte edition of uh, Net Takeaways here. It is officially fall. doesn't feel like it in most parts of the country just yet. Nope. No, we've been having 80 and sunny here in Chicago. Basically, uh, basically uh, feels like spring in Miami here. It does feel like spring in Miami, but I'll take it. It's uh, it's pretty good. Have you had a pumpkin spice latte? Are you? I don't even know. Are you a no. pumpkin spice latte fan? No, no, I I am Is not. Anyone a fan. in the house the Harf household a fan? I think my wife might be, but uh, but I'm not. I'm not really sure. She uh, she's she has been actually on a bit of a coffee evolution of late. A journey. Uh, a journey. Uh, Keurig actually came out recently with a new uh, machine that not only makes coffee, but also makes espresso-like, not espresso, but espresso-like drinks, where they basically, they, they take their pods and they really concentrate the 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 shot. The caffeine. It's, yeah. it's very concentrated in it's, there. Exactly. So you can use regular K-cups, but it it creates a much more espresso-like situation. Then you can also hit uh, a latte button. You can also hit a cappuccino button. Um, it's very user-friendly. <laughs> it's for those of us who are not interested in getting too serious, but just serious enough. Yeah. Well, I like that you yeah. guys are on a journey because uh, no one can see because we're obviously in podcast format. But I am chugging my normal. Which I've never had a journey on this. Yeah, just, you're, you're, you're on a different kind of journey. This is just your <laughs> standard garden variety, sugar-free right. Red Bull right here. So right. that's my journey. Right, you're on the Red Bull journey. Exactly. Right. right. Um, so yeah, no, it's great to be back in here. Uh, a little oh, bit yeah. of a fall edition. It's kind of, I feel like the, this year has been so strange in terms of the deal flow, in terms of deal making. We didn't really see a summer slowdown. Mm-mm. The pandemic has, people are thinking about it, people are talking about it, but it really hasn't materially impacted the real estate world. I should say, that's not that's not a fair way of saying it. It hasn't stopped business from still being pretty robust in the real estate world. Would you agree with that? I would. And I really think that, you know, people are, while, while they're reading about all of these things that could affect their business and they're reading about all these uh all these things that frankly are affecting their business. Yeah. They're not necessarily really making any sort of different decisions based upon what they're reading or hearing. In the sense that if you thought there was a food shortage coming, right, you may not go out to dinner as much. Is that happening? I don't think we're seeing no. it yet. No, no. It's no. Uh, we're seeing as much no. normalcy as possible in a time when you wouldn't think there would be that much normalcy. Exactly. I think there's just there's a lot of talk, right, about what's going on. I mean, our industry specifically, right, 1031 tax law, right? I mean, everybody's talking about 1031 tax law. But it's not changing behavior yet. Oh no. No. Oh, no, 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 no. No. No, and I don't and I don't think that the amount of 1031 transactions that are occurring right now would be any less if we weren't in the state That's of right. a situation where where people are thinking about, hey, maybe this might go away next year or something may be retroactive. I don't think there'd be any less transaction volume. Maybe I'm crazy. Well, we will never know for sure because well, obviously we'll of know course. the alternative. But I do agree with you. I think that we're just seeing, seeing – uh, uh, 
as much normalcy as you can in crazy times right now. So uh, some of the topics that we're going to cover today, I think, speak to that. Uh, Absolutely. We've seen just this mega trend of single-tenant office transactions lately, and we'll get into that in a moment. But you wouldn't know that the office... Uh, ecosystem had been totally shaken up over the last 24 months based on these transactions that we're going to talk about. Not, yeah, and I think that uh, certainly there's there's a there's a serious view amongst many large companies of taking the long view uh, on on their real estate and on their positioning, but uh, but it's 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 unbelievable relative to the amount of actual physical occupancy that we're seeing, you know, especially in in any of these big cities, um, and and I think that you know really today uh, our talk is really going to be, uh, you know, centered around a ra- you know a race to hard assets. I think that's what it really is. I think it's a race to hard assets in conjunction with safe yield, right? I, and I, yeah. I hate saying that. I literally hate saying it because I feel like we've been saying it for five years now, but that's what it is to the nth degree right now. So we'll get more into that in a little bit. Um, we're also going to co- co- uh, cover something that I think is fascinating, this upcoming IPO of Warby, Warby Parker. Correct me. I'm saying it wrong. I always say this. Warby one. Parker. There we go. Warby Parker. And I think there's a fascinating story there that we want to unpack in terms of the retail bricks and mortar online kind of uh, intersection, for lack of a better word. Absolutely. Um, maybe we can kick off with a little local Chicago real estate or at least sports real estate hybrid type of scenario. It might not be so interesting for our listeners outside of Chicago, but. I personally think one of the most fascinating civic real estate dynamics we've seen over the last decade is this arms race of NFL stadiums and how NFL owners are effectively just shaking down uh, municipalities to get these very favorable deals done. And and obviously, um, all municipalities didn't get shaken down. Obviously, San Diego saw the, the, the Chargers leave town and St. Louis saw the Rams leave town and go out to L.A. and Kroenke got a great deal there. But we've seen just this absolute uh, arms race and uh, and leverage just being effectuated to get these new mega uh, NFL stadiums. And here in Chicago, we're seeing that play out right now. Yeah, it's it's very interesting, and <clears throat> certainly the dynamic that sh- the Chicago Bears have with uh, Soldier Field is. Is one uh, is one that that is becoming increasingly unique in today's world, right? Uh, most of these stadiums are owned by their teams. That's right, and they're the primary revenue streams. Is what these folks are figuring out. Exactly, and when you think about concerts, when you think about uh, you know entertainment gr- venues, entertainment venues, and frankly, when you think about kind of. You know, in addition, it's a it's a whole other topic and conversation. But kind of what happens to the real estate in sure. these areas when they build these stadiums, um, and frankly, how much of that real estate the owners of these teams own in the end. Well, they're becoming uh, developers, really. Exactly. And, and you look at what's going cronky out in L.A., for instance. I think the SoFi was was it was five billion, a five billion dollars stadium. Or yeah, uh, you look at obviously the Raiders in Vegas. I don't know the cost in that stadium, but I'm sure well in excess of two and a half, three billion dollars as well. Yeah, and they've they overshot their budget just a little <laughs> they, bit. just a little bit. Yeah. Um, they've created these massive real estate campuses surrounding them on the magnitude of a hundred acres. Uh, and that's where they're making a lot of the money today. And so here in Chicago, for people who 
who don't know, for people who might be outside of Chicago, um, the Bears have obviously been for decades and decades at Soldier Field, which is a municipally owned stadium here in Chicago. In 2000, um, the city got kind of sh- shaken down, for lack of a better way of saying it, and agreed to do, uh, I think it was on the order of a quarter billion dollars of upgrades. They put a spaceship on top of it. Yeah. It was actually even more than I think they spent, it? It spent $510 million. That, that, yeah, mean, which is a big number, and you yeah. can tell because there's a giant glass and metal spaceship sitting on top yeah. of you know, a structure that's 100 years old. But fast forward to today, and the, the McCloskey family who owns the Bears is basically threatening to take their proverbial ball, no pun intended, and go out to Arlington Heights, which is in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. Yeah, and uh, look, at the end of the day, I, you and I both— know how much tiffs come into play into these types of situations but i i i i'm i'm really curious to see ultimately you know how things play out and and what ultimately happens and whether this is just a situation where uh the bears are trying to improve their <laughs> situation uh with soldier field ultimately or whether they do you know, somehow move forward and decide to build a new, you know, build a new stadium and and, and create a whole new suburb. <laughs> and I think to your point, I, I think yeah, whole new suburb is right. <laughs> suburb within a suburb. I think your point earlier is is very apropos, and I just want to go back to that because for me, I really think that this is very coordinated on the part of the Bears organization. Um, they obviously let the news, quote unquote, slip that they'd signed a purchase agreement on the Arlington Heights racetrack, which is owned by the Kentucky Downs uh, folks. Um, I don't think that's something you put out there unless you want it to be out there so people know that you've signed something. I, I, sure. There's a lot of concessions that the Bears could theoretically shake out of the city of Chicago, whether it's naming rights or Soldier Field, whether it's building out other areas of Soldier Field that might not be built out. Um, so I, th- I, I think this is still very much to be be decided right now if the Bears are going to stay. What do you think? Could, uh, could Chicago support two NFL franchises, Isaiah? What's your view on that? I don't think... I- I don't think so. Do, you, I, I, do the I don't, Browns leave Cleveland again and become the Chicago stop, Browns? Stop. stop. <laughs> for those, don't, for don't, those of you who don't crush know, my heart again. Isaiah is a huge bit. I think that's. A, I think if you had the Chicago Browns, I think you'd be winning. They wouldn't. No. Be, they wouldn't be in Cleveland, but you still have the Browns near listen, and dear to your listen, heart. This is our year. Okay, they're looking this, good. This is our year. The Bake Show is is the Bake Show, <laughs> and we're all excited. Uh, our defense was supposed to be much better than it is, but. Um, that's okay. I'm here for it. Well, it wouldn't be our pumpkin spice latte edition if we didn't talk about uh, a little bit of football. So I'm glad that we covered that. Let's get into today, to today's main topic here, um, the office arms race. Um, we have seen over the past month just a, a number of massive office transactions have either been announced or, or come to market or closed. And I think we're going to see some themes as we go through these. Um, but you know, they all share a lot of common denominators, long-term leases, great credit tenants, and incredible low yields with record-breaking price per pounds. Um, the the most notable one, I think a lot of people probably caught this because it made major waves across not just real estate outlets, but... Uh, you know, this is the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, it was in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. Google bought their New York um, Hudson Square campus Two point one billion dollars. Um, that's B with a billion with a B, and 
1.7 million square feet. So I think that works out to about $1,200 per square foot. Plus or minus. Yeah, it's it, it's an unbelievable purchase, but I have to say it's not a purchase that um, I think is so unexpected. It's unexpected given the times we're in, but it's not unexpected given what Google has done historically. Google eliminated their lease uh, in their Chelsea Square space uh, in the building that they own um, between 8th and 15th. Um, and, you know, in 2011, they paid six ninety a foot for or $1.9 billion for an, you know, for an, a massive campus. And looking back on it, right, we look at that kind of pricing and we say, geez, like they stole that building. Right? Yeah, they, they, when you look at it now, they did it. Because what we've seen right now is a confluence of three factors. Low cap rates, construction costs and real estate costs that went up and pushed the price, the, the, the construction costs per square foot up. And um, just increasing desire from investors to own long-term leases. Right. So those factors in tandem have just brought the market from what you say was it six ninety a square in twenty eleven? Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's brought the market from call it the five hundred to eight hundred range over a thousand dollars a square foot right now. Yeah. And certainly it's it's a it's a huge pill to swallow, but. Uh, I think Google's probably thinking to themselves, listen, if we're in a situation where, one, we can control, right, what happens in the buildings that we occupy, and two, we're in a hard asset arms race, and we want to control as much space as possible long term, and we want to be able to look back in 10 years like we can look back right now in 10 sure. years and say, and say that was really smart of us, right? I I think for companies that have the kind of balance sheets that Google have, right? And where a purchase like this is a drop in the bucket, it it, it it just makes a tremendous amount of sense. Well, I haven't looked at the numbers recently for Google, but I do know Apple and I, I suspect Google are well into the tens of billions of dollars of cash on their balance sheet. Exactly. So if you're sitting there with that kind of cash and you really have nowhere to put it, uh, getting an implied 4% cap rate on the real estate that you're going to want to control long term is actually, I think, you know, understandable, very understandable. Uh, and then separate third-party investors who aren't the owner-occupiers who want to play ball now know that they have to play ball by those sets of rules. Another big Google transaction that just came to market, Vulcan developed a uh, Google campus in Seattle. Uh, $800 million is the whisper pricing on that. 12 years worth of lease, projected to be a 4% cap rate, $1,250 a square foot. So that's another huge number. And the really shocking thing is these numbers are not just in the big big markets, Seattle, New York, LA, San Jose. We just saw the Honeywell, new international campus that came to market, newly developed in Charlotte, 15-year lease. Uh, that property is being whispered at $270 million. That's a four and a quarter cap rate and projects out to $720 a square foot. So you look at that $720 a square foot for Honeywell and Charlotte, surpassing what Google paid for Chelsea in 2011 in New York. And to me, that's a really fascinating dynamic. It's it's unbelievable. I think that, uh, you know, certainly there's there's a huge bifurcation right between tenants buying their own buildings and and frankly Google saying to themselves what's 2 billion dollars for us to control our destiny right versus versus uh you know what eventually will be international investors uh, and investors here stateside saying listen we need to get money out the door and and there's not much good product out there uh backing income streams 
what can we buy and these yields just getting compressed and compressed and compressed because there's there there, there is nothing like Honeywell with a 15 year lease on on the market and and them being able to look at the residual value once this lease is up and saying, hey, you know, how how appropriate was the risk we took? And then being to answer that question saying, eh, pretty appropriate, even at these kinds of cap rates. So I think it's it's a it's a situation where the market is just starved for inventory and it's starved for a big name like Honeywell. It's starved for just quality. And 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 frankly you know, sellers and landlords are taking advantage of the of 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 that situation today in the marketplace. One hundred twenty-one billion is the current Google cash on the balance sheet. So, for comparison, that's like you have a hundred-dollar bill in your pocket, and you go to McDonald's and get two uh, double cheeseburgers for two dollars. That's the equivalent of how much they spent on their two point one billion dollar campus. It's really just wild when you think about it. Um, and I think you're spot on in terms of the shortage of quality assets. That's what's going on right now. We, we've said it over and over, bifurcation, bifurcation, yield, yield, yield. Those have been the two biggest themes over the last five years. And so for me, this is where it gets really interesting, where we start talking about these long-dated leases that the KKRs, that the other big money folks of the world, not owner-occupiers, really want to have these long-dated credit assets on their balance sheet. Um, and it's pulling that yield curve for those very long-dated leases really down towards 4%, obviously driven by cheap financing in the marketplace. Um, but what does it mean for the actual, uh, the meat, so to speak, of the office world? What's going on once you get past these diamonds, uh, these long-dated, high-credit, top-10 markets? What's going on with the balance of the office market, both from an investment perspective, from a utilization perspective? And are we going to see these low yield translate to meaningfully improving the rest of the office market in your mind? I, I think that, uh, that these assets are special that are trading and these assets are in their own little tiny bucket. Um, and frankly, that the rest of the office market, uh, I think it's safe to say, is bleeding. And and I'm not talking about the trophy office buildings in New York or the trophy office building in Chicago that maybe only has five or six tenants and is occupied by the largest consulting firms, the largest uh, investment banks um, and buildings of that nature that frankly, honestly, are, are, are being viewed kind of in that tiny bucket uh, like single tenant net lease office. Um, I'm talking about the rest of the world. I'm talking about the buildings that that have – 20 tenants with 10 to 30,000 square feet of space that are realizing they're now a two to 5,000 square foot tenant moving forward with what will be a natural hybrid type schedule for potentially the rest of time. Well, there's obviously been so much talk over the last two years. We're really getting to two years since the pandemic has meaningfully started here. Um, I think back in April, May, June of 2019, a lot of folks were thinking office is going to be a disaster, right? I think that was such a consensus line of thinking. And then I don't want to say people stop thinking that, but they stopped talking about it the same way. Like, I think there was this presumption that office disaster is going to be a kind of Titanic hitting the iceberg type of moment rather than this long evolution. And I think our view is all spent, it's going to be maybe not a decade-long evolution, but it's going to be 60 
90 months of in terms of evolution for this to all work through the system because you're right. I mean, we walk around downtown and we were just talking about this the other day. You probably have 20% maximum of your people back moving around the downtown area. You just see that with your own eyes. It, it's going to be very interesting because I think when you think about the number of five, seven, and 10-year leases that were signed between 2019 and 2020, in 2020, um, you have a, and, and renewals, right? That were done. You have a situation where we can. It instantly hit us because we went from a hundred to zero, from being in the office to not being in the office, and we spent six months, as you basically, as you said, talking about it. But, but now, and, and you still have these tenants paying on these leases right now, um, because obviously a majority of landlords have said, you know, pay your lease. We you know, we, we we don't care that you took too much space, right? Or, or now that you see yourself as taking too much space. And and so the the sublease market is huge right now. Um, but the real bloodshed, in my opinion, comes in another 24, 36, 48 months, as you right. said, when these leases start to roll and, and these people pay out their leases and then they say, hey, we don't need 10,000 square feet anymore. We were, we're really comfortable living with 3,500 or 4,000 square feet. And it just starts to shrink the market. Frankly, it's going to shrink the market fairly quickly and it's going to shrink it overnight. That's right. And, and it's going to be a rude, it's going to be a rude awakening, especially given how much new office has been built. Um, and remember, everyone's going to still gravitate towards the new product, right? The new product ultimately in my mind will be okay. The product surrounded by all the, you know, really good amenities will be fine. It's, it's, and I, I, I hate to say it, you know, right? It's the kind of product that, frankly, Stan Johnson Company offices in right now. That I say to myself, what what happens long term, right? Yeah. To 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 an Illinois center? Yeah, the kind of class B plus, A minus, '90s vintage product is going to be right. the question mark. I'm going to challenge you. You said new product, beautiful shiny product is going to be just fine. Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, actually came out today yesterday at a conference. I think it was in LA, and said. We're not going back to the office. Uh, and his, right. his comment was, right now, we have these beautiful, shiny new offices. Uh, the one in San Francisco, empty for a different set of reasons because it's leaning. <laughs> it's becoming the, the Tower of Pisa, uh, San, Francisco, San Francisco version. That's a separate story. He said, you know, our offices are empty right now. And even after the pandemic, 50 to 60% of our workers may not come back. Now, some of that, probably strategic. Mark just bought Slack for $27 billion. So he has some other reasons to kind of promote some work flexibility. But I think there's a lot of truth in his statement as well. And that's going to be interesting. What does that what does that mean if Salesforce is out there saying, sorry to tell my friends here, but we're not going back to the office? Yeah, and I think that there'll be a number of buildings that, frankly, are already set up for the three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 users and maybe already have corrected basis through the last cycle. And we'll be able to say, hey, Yes, we're not a shiny new building, but we also don't have the basis of a shiny new building either. So we can afford your 18, 20, 22 net deal. We're here for it. And, and I think that 
frankly, buildings that are already set up in that nature and have the and were purchased on a low cost per foot basis and have landlords that know what they're doing and know how to be attractive to that two to five thousand square foot tenant. I got to tell you, I think I think those buildings also will do well. Um, I think we we we've referred middle. to those everything as in the, middle. the apartment style offices, right? Yeah. The 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 bays that are way smaller. Um, but I think you're right that B vintage product that has the thirty thousand square foot, twenty eight thousand square foot uh, floor plates. It's going to have a world of hurt that's going to come down on it. But yeah. this is going to be a slow-moving process. It's not going to happen overnight. It's a five-year, seven-year story. And I think that helps the market a little bit for that to work through the system. You're going to see sales. You're probably going to see some foreclosures. Everything we know, we've talked about this, another big theme, everything is about basis. So if that property trades and the basis for an owner goes from $500 a square foot to three twenty-five, well, that's a whole different story. So I think we'll see more and more of that. But it's something we continue to watch very carefully. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see if the office market is really – the office sales market is really the only market that in my opinion kind of really mirrors what's going on, right? Because when you look at where multifamily sales are, when you look at where even senior housing sales are, when you look at uh, all these other industries and all these other sects of real estate, right, it, it, it's almost as if, right, everyone is saying – we don't really care what's going on right now. We're we're buying for the future. We're buying for what we believe is going to be very inflationary times over the next five, 10 years. And we want to get in while this, you know, while, while our cost of capital likely couldn't be any cheaper. Right. And so, and so they're, they're just buying with a, you know, with, with maybe only one eye open and saying, we hope this works out. Um, And frankly, we know there's somebody else out there who would probably pay even more than what we're paying right now. Exactly. Right. So, but I don't, I'm not necessarily sure that that type of mentality and that type of thinking, right, is going to happen in the multi-tenant office market. I think that may be the one space where people, where, where people say, eh, I'm not a buyer of anything in real estate. I'm a buyer of maybe anything but multi-tenant office. And we're seeing that. That's pretty common. And obviously – Medical office, totally different, totally different animal. Um, that's got tons of capital. But multi-tenant office probably is challenging multi-tenant retail for the most uncertain segment of the commercial real estate world right now. Absolutely. And yet and yet valuations don't really reflect that. Don't don't reflect that. The valuation all. index on a year-over-year basis for all commercial real estate up 13.3% right now. For me, that's a really fascinating statistic when you consider the pressure on various segments of the industry. Yeah. And while I don't have the stat on it, I have to think that multi-tenant retail cap rates have compressed maybe more than anything I think, year yeah. over year. I haven't seen that stat either, but I would suspect they're probably down 50 basis points. Um, there's a lot less uncertainty in the retail world than any would have, would have anticipated a year ago. And that's yeah. not necessarily our topic, but it does translate well into our next topic. Uh, um, Retail real estate, for me, we referenced at the top of the show, one of the most interesting stories of late is the Warby Parker um, IPO that actually just happened yesterday. Came out at a $6 billion valuation, a little over $50 a share. Um, And for me, what's so interesting is Warby Parker was started almost, I think, a little over a decade ago by um, four Wharton students. They started it and they said, we're going to 
build this beautiful brand that really disintermediates the the retail storefronts of the world where you know prices for glasses prescription glasses were really high because Luxottica controlled the market there's all these markups for distribution and they said we're going to cut out the middleman and we're going to sell prescription glasses right to you direct to customer we're going to ship you five time, five different pairs try in all the frames tell us what you like and great they did wonderful. They were ramping up. They had a great business model. And then they started opening these retail locations. I think their first one was in Brooklyn, if I'm not mistaken, four or five years ago. And before you know it, these guys now are up to 100 locations as we speak as this IPO hit the market. 50% of their sales coming from uh, bricks and mortar sales, not online sales. And they're expanding by another three dozen locations this year. 36 new locations is what they're projecting. And they believe that of their new growth, 60% of that's going to come from the bricks and mortar locations, not online. For me, this is one of the most telling examples of one of the trends we've been talking about over and over for the past couple of years, the merger of bricks and mortar real estate and online real estate. People always thought they're two different worlds. They don't mix together. This, for me, is a perfect example of showing the synergy of how retail, online, and, and, and physical is going to mix in the years ahead. Yeah, I think it's unbelievable. I certainly think that Warby Parker's business model you know, certainly helps them succeed in the bricks-and-mortar game, right? When you think about it, um, and you, you really touched on this, prior to a Warby Parker, right, four people got paid before I actually paid for – the glasses and the prescription that I was purchasing, right, at, at a Lenscrafters or, you know, take your favorite store, right? So I think, one, because there are less people getting paid and there's less markup, the bricks and mortar is able to work and work a lot better. Yeah. That's number one. Um, number two, I think that it's, it's a real it, – it, Warby Parker represents, you know, a real evolution, or, or maybe a revolution in that, in that why don't we start online, right? Why don't we start with a product that we can get out to build, our, a, build a brand, build a online. brand, right? Our target demographic is on their phone, right? Three, four, five hours a day, yeah. right? Let's, let's, let's start there. Let's start where they really are, right? It's one thing if we were living in 1985 and somebody was spending approximately five hours a week at a mall, sure. right? But that's not happening anymore. So ultimately, brands are, brands are getting smart. They're evolving and they're understanding that, hey, let's build this online first. Let's build our awareness first. Let's build it, frankly, you know, at a much, at a much cheaper rate. 40 years ago, if you were going to open up a Best Buy, if you were going to start any concept, Sam Walton, Walmart. You need you, a lot of money. It, you needed, A, a lot of money, and you had to start one physical location until you got your second. And that was the model. That was the only way. And I'm sure we could come up with some some exceptions to that rule, maybe via catalogs or, or other solutions. But generally, you had to build one store at a time. I think Warby Parker's fascinating in so much as they built a brand – got mind share and then said, great, now we have a core critical mass. Let's go build out our physical environment. We're seeing that with a number of retailers. Um, Casper comes to mind here in terms of all all online. And now I think they have a few locations here in Chicago. Um, You know, it's, it's really fascinating to see this evolution for me. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, there's there's actually a number of companies that are online only that are now 
getting into the brick and mortar space. And they're actually doing it through a Chicago-based company. Um, I know you're familiar with Leap Retail. Um, and it just it, it's kind of funny that we're touching on this because they're they're obviously local to us. But um, they're effectively a sublease company, um, and they contract with really high-end, uh, popular online brands to help them and, and frankly, de-risk the online brand um, from opening up brick-and-mortar stores. So sto- so uh, brands like Good Life, Frank & Oak, Mack Weldon, Something Navy, I mean, these are popular brands that I know your wife, my wife, everyone else's wife is shopping at, and we're constantly being targeted by these companies uh, ad-wise online, on Instagram, Facebook. And it, it's just it's, – it's an unbelievable evolution now to see, for instance – you know, in the future, a Mac, you know, walk into a Mac Weldon store, right? I mean, think, think about their online presence and think about how often you, you get hit with a Mac Weldon, uh, advertisement. I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe they just got me, uh, maybe I don't I'm think just they're on my feed, but that doesn't mean anything. The point is these brands are really figuring out how to push through to right. their core demographic and then bring them in and looking at a lot of creative solutions. We, we look at Amazon. We talked about Amazon a lot, using Kohl's as their distribution node, sure. figuring that out. But even the small brands, whether it's a Mack Weldon, whether it's whatever that brand might be, they need to have this physical presence. And unlike a Warby Parker, they can't do it on their own. So they're looking at these creative solutions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so that's, for me, another really interesting evolution that we're going to continue to watch. But that is a great real-time data point for how this, this integration between online and, and uh, bricks and mortar continues to just evolve and really grow. I th- want to switch gears here and talk a little bit about this, this burgeoning crisis on the horizon that I think a lot of people will have started to hear about but probably don't have a full awareness of. Uh, major shipping shortages globally. Um, and I think it's a really fascinating kind of case study of the interconnection of, of our global economy today. Um, I, I can't find the exact stat. I was trying to scroll through here and look at it while we were talking. But the average price of a ship, to ship a container from, I'm going to say, Shanghai, just as an example, to Long Beach was something like $1,300 per shipping container two to three years ago. The numbers that I've seen are, are now tripling or quadrupling that cost. You have uh, off the port of Long Beach, I think something like 100 ships sitting out there that can't get into port. And what we've really seen here is a shortage of, of labor. That's been a major issue. We've seen restrictions on the free movement of goods and people uh, across the world. We've seen uh, really difficulties with uh, folks getting uh, the, the the people, the seafarers, who you actually need to ro- – to, um, run these boats. So we've seen just an enormous amount of kind of complication across the global supply chain. And it looks like it's picking up speed right now. Uh, and it looks like it's going to have more disruptions going into the holiday. And this is not just for consumer goods. This is also for industrial production. I think this is a big a big deal that's going to impact all of the economy and real estate in a way that people don't fully appreciate just yet. I, I think you're absolutely right. And, uh, and obviously you heard me you know, uh, mention it, uh, very, very, uh, uh, minorly earlier, but the idea that there's potentially just less food right in the United States is, is something that just, 
absolutely boggles my mind. I mean, we can talk about what's going to happen over the holiday season. We can talk about what's going to happen, um, you know, when it comes to to goods that we need in order to make everyday supplies. Um, those are things that uh, that that I think ultimately will get worked out. It might take years, not months, right? I mean, that's and that's that's I think the the stark reality that nobody is is uh, is ready for. It's going to be years, not months, um, and this holiday season may look a little bit different. Um, but I can tell you that the quality of food and when you talk about the materials within restaurants that are being used now, they're they're completely completely different. Yeah, and. And that's that's uh, that's going to have a huge ripple effect, and I guess not to not to kind of bounce all around, but remember, if a ship is sitting right <laughs> outside a Long Beach, if a ship is sitting outside a Long Beach and no one sees it, does it make a noise? No, <laughs> no. What I was going to say was, if a ship is sitting there, right? Who do you think those costs get passed on to at the end yeah. of the day? Yeah, we all know that's the consumer. It's not right. so easy for people to understand that, but that ship has costs. Insurance, labor, uh, probably a lot of others that we're forgetting. But yeah, that that's going to push up and that goes to the other theme and at risk of bouncing around, inflationary pressure, right? That ship sitting there every single day adds maybe not a percent, but a quarter percent, a half percent to the cost of the goods sitting on there because the producer, the <laughs> distributor, the retailer has to make up for those costs. And if you want a perfect case study, here you go. Yesterday, again, big news day yesterday, Dollar Tree came out and they said for the first time they're going to be selling items above $1 because they have to account for this. So for me, if you want a more perfect example, (laughs) I'm not sure what it would be other than, you know, Dollar Tree has now become dollar and a quarter tree. I always knew they had a bad name. Yeah. Um, Great company? Not such a good name because I knew knew that I knew they couldn't keep it at a dollar forever. Couldn't keep it. They, they're they're in trouble. What are they going to do ten years from now when uh, you can't get to a dollar anymore? Two dollar tree. Two dollar tree. There you go. Three dollar tree. Maybe that's why they bought family. Well, family dollar still got the same problem, I guess. Right. I would say so. Yeah, yeah. They still have that family dollar. two dollar. Yeah, family two dollar. There you go. So for me, this 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 uh, shortage is a really fascinating thing to watch. I had a great. Uh, conversation with one of our sales leaseback clients yesterday who's in industrial production. Um, they're seeing in, a lot of impacts in terms of plastics coming in for, for some of their extrusion products. So this is something that I don't think people have a full appreciation of just yet. Um, and it's going to have a major impact going forward here. Yeah. And I, and I, more so than anything, I don't think that unfortunately people think about these things too hard. And I think that ultimately they, they just, especially uh, especially U.S. citizens, they just kind of let it hit them, right? And it creates a situation where, where one day you're doing something a certain way and then the next day you're like, oh, man, I just went to the grocery store and there's no toilet paper. Like, or there's no, you know, or they, they, they identify something that really resonates with them, right? And they're like, oh, man, it's, it's, it's not here anymore. And then what happens? They get angry. They tell all their friends on Facebook they're angry, right? And and it 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 just spirals. Um, so I'm I'm bracing that hopefully around holiday season we don't frankly see a lot of that um, because that 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 could be devastating, devastating but, too. But I think that it's uh, 
it's it's going to be a rude awakening for people when they realize that they can't just have everything that they want or that they're used to having, you know, da- da- basic daily goods um, because there's a shortage of them. I think that uh, one of your core hypotheses is U.S. customers are very lazy, entitled, and don't want to think about anything until they absolutely have to. Well, there you said it. <laughs> um, and speaking of thinking about things uh, until you have to, I mean, obviously not a U.S. story, but the the gas shortage that we've got going on right now in the U.K. Have you followed this story? Not not much, but I can only imagine. Yeah, I mean, right now, I mean, it's almost impossible to get fuel in London. Uh, you, I think Google said that searches of electric vehicles in England went up by like 16,000%. Um, so it's good to have an electric car. It's good to have an electric car right now. And, and there's going to be a lot more electric cars in the future in the UK because of this, presumably. Um, and so I think that's a really interesting story. That That's driven more by a shortage of um, truck drivers, or they would call them lorry drivers in the sure. UK. Um, but we're seeing that here too. I and mean, there's a there's a shortage of, of truck drivers. In the, I was going to say, the there's US. a shortage of truck drivers here. There's a shortage of... Uh, of of any sort of of manual labor here um there's more job openings here than i've ever seen in those types of spaces um good luck getting a moving company right now everybody you know everybody's there's still a huge you know us housing crisis here and people in in search of quote unquote space um cars but good uh, luck getting a used car prices there up 10 20 percent oh crazy yeah really just over the last six months too it's it's been tight since the beginning of the pandemic but we've seen it and i i really just think you said it earlier and i'm going to re- reiterate and echo that it's really this kind of i call it you know a, a pond ripple effect the ripples just keep spreading out further and further and having more and more of an impact and i do agree with it. it's going to take um a couple of years to work this through the system. And I think it's going to get choppy in ways that people don't fully appreciate just yet. Right. Everybody, as far as the car, you know, manufacturing went, everybody just thought it was a chip shortage. Right. And that, and that, oh, that'll be fixed by fall, winter of 2021. And we'll be back on our merry way of seeing uh, car dealership lots full. I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think the best thing you can do if you have a hard asset, like a car, like a house, is to hang on to it. (laughs) (laughs) That would be a good way to solve the problem. Don't put yourself in the crosshairs of what's going on out there on the crisis. Because right now, right now, buying a buying a uh, buying a used Chevy Tahoe, you 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 uh, you you're basically paying a new price for a used one, and you don't have a choice. You really don't have a choice. If you're in the market for a Tahoe today, you are paying as much as you would have paid, if not more, for a new one in 2018 or 2019. And the cost to run that vehicle has never been more expensive. I, As somebody who needs vehicle service right now, do you know how hard it is to get in for any kind of vehicle service? I do not. It's very hard. My my family is very angry that our air conditioning isn't working well when we drive to our lake house. They're very angry at me right now. You need to solve that. But it sounds like it's going to take weeks. Trust me, I'm trying. It's going to take weeks, not days. So thank (laughs) God it's getting a little bit cooler here. Um, So, yeah, I think this really interesting dynamics going on in the world today. Um, This has been, you know, a, a great session. We continue to watch things closely and we will... 
look forward to being back uh, next time for our ne- next segment of net takeaways. Hopefully it's not pumpkin spice latte season still. No, no. I think at that point we're going to be a, a lot closer to... Uh, to Peppermint just, something. Oh, no. It's not going to no? be that we got to have a Halloween episode this oh. year. So. Oh, yeah. Exactly. So until next time, thank you for joining Net Takeaways with Felder and Harf. 